chapter 16, Jesus is, uh, uh, gives his disciples at the Last Supper, after Judas leaves the room to go betray Jesus, Jesus tells the disciples, gives them information about the Holy Spirit that we don't find anywhere else. And it's certainly an elaboration on uh, the Last Supper event where Jesus was with his disciples just before he was uh, arrested and started on the things pertaining to the cross. John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come. Notice he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. This word truth means reality. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. Folks, I, I'm, I make an assumption here, and I, I think I'm okay doing it, but you check it out for yourself, judge it for yourself. Notice the way Jesus said that. He said, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. There's something about the connection between the Word of God, which the Holy Ghost always speaks, and not speaking of himself. So my assumption here is that even as the Scripture says in the Psalms that God exalted his Word above his name, He's made his name, which represents the power of God, which represents everything that he is and everything that he has. He has relegated everything regarding his power to the, the, uh, to the word of God. The name represents the power of God, but the word of God represents the truth, the words that were spoken. And of course, if we follow that line of reasoning a little bit further, we certainly understand that the world works on words. The world, this physical world, this physical realm was created by words. Our words bring into our lives the things that we say, etc. And so I have to assume that Jesus is uh, magnifying the place of the word rather than the power of God. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth or guide you into all reality. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now if he's going to guide us into all truth, most of us think of being led by the Holy Ghost as getting direction from God, telling us where he wants us to live, where he wants us to fellowship, where he wants us to operate, where he wants us to work, and so forth. And we certainly have evidence in the Scripture that the leading of the Holy Ghost will cover all of those specific things and specific aspects of our lives. But specifically, when Jesus says he'll guide you into all truth, we know that the word is truth. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them, talking about the disciples and also those that would believe on him through, uh, through their preaching, which is us. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So first and foremost, the Holy Ghost is going to lead us and guide us into the truth of the reality of the word. He's going to lead us and guide us into the truth or the reality of who we are in Christ. He's going to lead us into the truth and the reality of what redemption is and what belongs to us because of redemption. He's going to lead us into the truth of healing that was purchased for us by the stripes of Jesus. He's going to lead us into the truth of success and prosperity, which Jesus was chastised for relative to the cross. So if we think of the Holy Ghost leading us and guiding us, rather than think only I'm not saying it, doesn't, uh, it isn't included because it is. 
But rather than just thinking uh, only or specifically about the Holy Ghost telling you what to do or where to go or that kind of thing, we need to realize that the Holy Ghost will lead us if we'll trust Him, if we'll rely on Him for it. He'll lead us into the things that belong to us. He'll show us how to receive our healing. He'll show us how to walk in prosperity. He'll show us how to walk in peace. He'll show us how to walk in righteousness. He'll guide you into all truth. Now, folks, redemption means about this much to most of the church world. It means forgiveness of sins. And that's where the majority of the church world stops. But we know that Jesus paid a lot more, paid the price for a lot more than just forgiveness of sins. And I hate to say it that way because it, it sounds like I'm saying that that's not a, uh, an important part or not the most important part because it is. Without doing away with the sin of mankind, without carrying and bearing away the sin of mankind, then there would be no righteousness. And if there were no righteousness, there would be no ability for us to stand before our Heavenly Father without a sense of shame or guilt. So the forgiveness of sins is huge. There's nothing that could be more important than that. But right on the other hand, the Bible says that Jesus paid the price for other things too. He paid the price for sickness and disease so that by his stripes we were healed. He paid the price for prosperity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He paid the price for us to, to have all the things that redemption means, all the things that righteousness provides for us, all the things that Jesus paid the price for. And the Holy Ghost wants to lead us and guide us into each one of those things. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 4 real quick. Romans chapter 4. We know this is the story of Abraham's faith, the description of Abraham's faith. I'll read it real quickly. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. Beginning in verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. That's what God had said to Abraham before he had children. Before him whom he believed. Now this word before means like unto. So it's trying to tell us that Abraham was imitating God. He was like unto God in certain respects in order to receive the miracle of the, uh, the child when he and Sarah were beyond childbearing years. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before, or like unto him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham was like unto God in those two things. Now when we think of God quickening the dead, we think of the power to raise the dead. When we think of ourselves relative to quickening the dead, we know we don't have that power. But then it goes on to tell us the next thing, the next aspect. He said, calling things that be not as though they were. Folks, that has to therefore mean that Abraham spoke life into his body in some manner. Now, he might not do it the way that we're describing it or the way that it comes to my mind. He might not have spoken to his body in the sense that he commanded his body to, to reproduce. He commanded his body to be healed. He commanded his body to amend or change or do whatever it needed to do to get uh, back to a functioning method or condition when it comes to having children. I have no idea. I have no idea if Abraham spent his day confessing things about his body. But the things that he did say, the things that the Lord had spoken over him, when he began to confess that, even when he began to use the new name that God gave him, which means father of many nations. When he began to use that new name, he's speaking life into his body. He's speaking life to his body. He's speaking contrary to the physical condition of his flesh. He's calling things that be not as though they are. 
and he's speaking life into his body. Let's keep reading. Who against hope, that means without hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That simply means he put his, tr- his hope and his trust, his faith, in what God told him rather than what he saw and felt in himself. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God. Uh, notice that phrase. He staggered not at the promise of God. We immediately, at least I do, I assume you do the same thing. I immediately think of uh, James chapter 1 where it talks about asking in faith. If you need wisdom from God in your situation, ask God who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering or not staggering in other words. Nothing wavering for he that is for he that, he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. He says the man that staggers or the man that wavers shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. So here's Abraham not staggering. This is Abraham understanding the principle, at least to this degree, that he's got to be solid and set and focused on God's word and only on God's word. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, the strong faith is identified, or two characteristics of strong faith are identified right here in these verses. Being, he was strong in faith, number one, giving glory to God. That means thanking God for the answer before he saw the answer. And then secondly, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, notice that last phrase. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform it. There's a, we all know the story in, my, in Matthew chapter 8, the beginning of the chapter where it says a leper came to Jesus and said to him, Master, if you will, you can make me healed or make me whole. And Jesus immediately moved with compassion. He immediately stretched forth his hand out to the guy and said, I will. He's the only guy in all the people that we have record of that Jesus ministered to or that came to Jesus for anything. He's the only one that is identified as asking about the will of God concerning his health. Now, I would find it shocking if there was nobody else that wondered the same thing that he did, but we don't have any record of it. It would seem that if it was done in, the, in this present day, if these things took, case in, uh, took place in this present day, it would seem to me that that would be the majority of the situations Jesus would run into. Because the questions in the body of Christ are all about God's will. Nobody questions God's power. Nobody questions whether God is able to heal the sick or perform miracles or able to do miraculous things. Nobody questions that. Nobody in the body of Christ, anyway, questions that. That's a given. That's kind of the baseline for everybody else, for everybody's belief. But Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. This leper in Matthew chapter 8 came and said, you can if you will. I believe you have the power. He must have heard, maybe even seen Jesus healing the sick. And so he accepted that. He was convinced probably through his five physical senses. He was convinced that God could or that Jesus was delegated by God and had the ability to heal the sickness and disease. But he wasn't sure about the willingness of God. 
Jesus answered that for him immediately. And as such, because it's such a, an issue in today's modern day church, we emphasize and we push, I do at least, I put a lot more emphasis on the willingness of God to heal than the ability of God to heal. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that we've got things out of balance because you don't have to push the, the ability of God to heal because most everybody accepts that already. As I said, the majority, question, majority of the questions that people have when it comes to receiving their healing or receiving anything from God has to do with the, will, uh, the willingness of God, the will of God itself. But now just as there's a leper in Matthew chapter 8, there are two blind men in Matthew chapter 9. And these two blind men, as Jesus is passing by, they begin to cry out and said, Have mercy on me, O, uh, o Son of David. Now, from the record that we have in the Scripture, they're using Messianic terms. Anybody that called Jesus the Son of David is identifying him as the Messiah, the one that is to come. So when they say to him, have mercy on us, O thou son of David, they're speaking their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And they came to him in the house, the place Jesus was going. Apparently somebody helped them to find their way to where he was. And when they came before him, Jesus asked them something really interesting. He said, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Now, we've got one example in Matthew chapter 8 of all the people that Jesus ministered to, of all the, the sick that were healed and so forth, all the healing miracles that we did, we, that he did. We have one record, one example of somebody that questions his will. Now, of all the people that Jesus healed and all the people that he ministered to, we have only one person that Jesus queried about his ability. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Folks, there's a thing, there's, there's something that's necessary in the, in the correct and, and effective operation of faith. There is something to believing that God is able. Now, it's so simple for us to just make a blanket statement and say, oh, yeah, well, God's able to do anything. He can do anything he wants to. God's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He can do anything. But notice this says Abraham had to be fully persuaded. Well, if you, have to be, if you can be fully persuaded, then that means you can be partially persuaded. If you can be fully persuaded, you can be half persuaded. If you can be fully persuaded, then that means you could be a tenth of the way persuaded. Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to also to perform. How do you get fully persuaded? How did Abraham get fully persuaded? Well, folks, if he became fully persuaded, we know at a certain time in his life when he was about 99 years old, we know that he had given up on the promise of God to have a child. When God appeared to him in Genesis chapter 18, and met with him. And the two angels were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah to execute judgment on them, on those cities. When the Lord began to speak to him about Isaac being born, Abraham laughed. He fell on his face and laughed. Well, he's certainly not fully persuaded that God's able to do it at that point. Now, we know he had the child at that age 100. 
So somewhere within 12 months or so period of time, he went from laughing at the promise of God to being fully persuaded. Same thing was true for Sarah. It was a couple of months after Abraham had had his encounter with the Lord that the Lord came again. And he was fellowshipping with Abraham. And they began talking about the child that was to be born. And Sarah was listening in from someplace. And when she heard it firsthand that time, she laughed. So sometime between age 99 and age 100 for Abraham, somewhere during that time, he went from laughing at the promise of God to becoming fully persuaded. It's obviously a progress or a progressive thing, a process. And Sarah was a couple of months behind him on that process. Because she had to have faith, and the Bible talks about her faith in Hebrews chapter 11, just like it talks about Abraham's faith. She's in the Hall of Fame of Heroes of Faith, too. Through faith, she received strength to conceive. Where'd she get the strength from? Well, one thing we know for sure, she had to change that laughing part about the promise of God. So there's something very, very important about the degree to which we're persuaded concerning God's ability. Now, most of us don't give that a second thought. Most of us just accept God's God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He can do anything he wants to do. So he can certainly do anything. He's certainly able. But this is a personal thing. This is a personal thing. Jesus needed to know from those two blind men, do you really believe that I'm able to do this? Well, they spoke their faith and they said yes. I wonder how persuaded they were. Were they fully persuaded? Or did they get results just being half persuaded? Or did they get results just because they said it no matter where they were in their thinking or in their believing? For that reason, that reason being the need, the importance of us being fully persuaded that what God had promised he's able also to perform. That faith in God's ability is something that it's good for us to be reminded of the power of God. We have to be careful when we get talking about things like this because some people believe only in the power of God and that's as far as they ever believe. Well, believing in the power of God alone won't do it. We see that from Matthew chapter 8. The leper is a good example of that. He believed completely in God's ability. He said so. He, re, he identified that he believed Jesus was able to heal. He just didn't know if he was willing. Well, the word was the answer. The word being Jesus, who reached forth his hand and said, I will be thou made clean. That overcame the lack or the gap in his faith. It's possible, we don't have enough information to say definitively, but it's possible that there was a gap in the two blind men's faith as well. And Jesus recognized that. Now, if he recognized it from things that they said or what they did, then there has to be more to the story than we have recorded. So perhaps it was something he knew by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. We don't know. 
But apparently it was just as important for Jesus to question the two blind men about their faith in his ability as it was for the leper to have his question answered about the willingness of God to heal. For that reason, there are a couple of different stories in the Bible that I seem to gravitate toward. Things that just really speak to me as to the power of God. And when we see his power on display, we can certainly identify his willingness to show himself strong on behalf of his people. Turn with me to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7, Elisha has taken over as the prophet of Israel for Elijah. You remember the story how Elijah was, uh, Elisha was his servant to Elijah. And he came to the place where he understood that his master was going home that day. And apparently that was something that the Holy Ghost was sharing with a lot of people. Because they came to two different groups of people that were spiritually attuned. And they pointed out to Elisha that Elijah would be leaving to go to heaven and be with the Father. Or in his day it would have been Abraham's bosom, paradise. And Elisha already knew it. And you remember the story how that Elijah kept telling Elisha, stay here. And Elijah wouldn't leave. And finally, he got kind of upset with him, it seems. And he said, why do you keep following me? He said, because I want a double portion of what you've got. And Elijah said, well, you've asked a hard thing. That's not a hard thing for God. So why would it be a hard thing? Elijah must be talking about it from a natural standpoint, from the physical standpoint. He said, you've asked for a hard thing. But if you see me when I go, it'll be granted to you. Well, they got to a certain place. And the sky opened up and a chariot of fire came down. And swept Elijah up. And he was taken into heaven. Now, I'm not really sure how all this stuff works. Or how it worked in this case. But what in the world else would there be to look at if a chariot of fire came down from heaven and took Elijah up? I mean, the requirement that Elijah placed on Elisha having what he wanted from God seems to be pretty simple. I mean, what would Elisha be doing? The sky opens up and the chariot starts coming down. And Elijah says, hold on a minute, I want to look over here at something. That doesn't make sense. I can't help but believe that he would have been captivated. Who wouldn't have been captivated by the sight that they were seeing? So Elisha, Elisha begins to operate in the double portion of what Elijah had. There are a couple of stories that identify Elisha and the way that he ministered on behalf of God. And there are some real big suddenlies. There's some real big sudden things that take place in Elisha's ministry and in his life that thrill me every time I read it. The Bible talks about a place, a point in time where the Assyrian king has besieged the city of the Israelites. And it tells about the king of Israel that meets these two women in the city. One of them, well, really meets only one. She tells the story on behalf of both of them. 
And the city is surrounded by the Assyrians. There's no way in. There's no way out. Food and water supplies have run dangerously low. So much so that these two mothers make a pact. And they make an agreement that today we'll boil your son and eat him. And tomorrow we'll boil my son and eat him. Now I know that we read and understand the words, but how in the world does something like that ever come to pass? Anyway, the ladies, the, the first mother is the one that's complaining to the king. She says, we went through with this, or I went through with this. Yesterday we killed and ate my son, but now I can't find the other woman. She's not holding up her end of the deal. And the king rends his clothes, tears his clothes in a sign of grief, disgust. Who knows whatever other emotions would have been attached to it. And it talks about that this, the, the scarcity, the food was so scarce that people were trying to eat anything and everything that they could. And they were willing, certainly, at the point of death, being so hungry, they're certainly willing to part with their, their money and everything that they own, all their possessions, if they could just have food. But there's no end in sight to the siege. And the Assyrians are wanting to starve them out. So unless they surrender, all hope is lost. Second Kings chapter 7, verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, think pennies, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, he's talking about a, 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 such a turnaround, such a spectacular turnaround, that whereas people were willing to give everything they own for a morsel of meal, by this time tomorrow there's going to be such an abundance of food that you'll be able to buy it cheap. Then a Lord in whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And Elisha answered him and he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. He's questioning the prophecy that Elisha has given. And granted, it sounds too good to be true. Verse 3, And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here till we die? Folks, that is one of the great lines in the whole Bible. Why sit we here till we die? Why let things keep going the way they're going as we have been doing? There's a lot of ways you can apply this. A lot of things, a lot of situations in life that this would apply to. God has built into mankind the ability to be satisfied. And if you can be satisfied, then that means you can certainly be dissatisfied. I think a good, healthy dose of spiritual dissatisfaction is good for us. Even when the things of God are abundant, even when God is doing good things in our lives, 
I've never yet found the place where I'm truly satisfied spiritually. Have you? I'm not talking about satisfied with things. Thank God that's attainable. But I'm talking about being satisfied with spiritual things. I believe that one of the greatest things in all of mankind in our life's existence here on this earth is spiritual hunger. Because without spiritual hunger, you never go in God. You never grow in God. You never make advances in the things of God. And I'll even go so far as to say this, and this is my opinion. But I'll even go so far as to say whatever it takes to get hungry is worth it. These people are physically hungry. And so I'm sure they wouldn't look at the, their physical circumstances and say famines are okay because they teach us to love food or to hunger for food. But it's not the same way spiritually. I've never come to begrudge anything that makes me hungry. Spiritually hungry I'm talking about. And that spiritual hunger is greater than anything, even the, uh, the alleviation of circumstances or situations. Because hunger is paramount. Spiritual hunger is paramount. At least it is to me. I would assume it would be the same for you. So here's these four guys. They said one to another, why sit we here till we die? Here's their reasoning. If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we'll die there. No point in going inside the city, this city. And if we still sit here, we're going to die too. Now therefore come and let us fall under the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. We're going to die anyway. Let's take a chance on the Syrians. So they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. We'll read it in just a moment, but they find that everything has been deserted. There's an abundance of food. Everything that anybody could ever need is right there, and there's nobody tending to the, to the stuff. Now, here's how it got that way. Just a short time before, apparently, the Syrians were numerous, and they were occupying their camp. But notice what chased them off. Notice what ran them away. Verse 6. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. I want you to see what God delivered Israel from one of the most severe famines that we have record of in the scripture. A noise. Just a noise. It wasn't even a physical sound. By that I mean it wasn't really horses and chariots. It wasn't really what it sounded like it was or sounded to be to the, uh, the Syrians. God chased away the enemies of Israel with a, with a noise, with a sound. That wasn't even real. I hope you know what I mean by that when I say it wasn't even real. I don't know how else to describe it. It wasn't just a physical sound or it wasn't a physical sound because it sounded like 
horses and chariots, and there were no horses and chariots. Folks, if God can run off the enemies of Israel with a sound, what can he do for you and me with the word of God? Let's keep reading. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses even at the camp as it was and fled for their life. Now notice this was at the twilight that they left. We just read a few verses before that it was the twilight when the four lepers decided to go to the Syrian camp. Now what triggered God's deliverance? He's already prophesied what things are going to be through Elisha in verse 1. What prompted or what triggered the noise that defeated the enemies of Israel? Four leprous guys saying, why are we sitting here and waiting for the inevitable? Why don't we change our situation? Why don't we do something? Because the worst that can happen is that we die and we're going to die here if we don't do anything anyway. I wonder how many times God's standing on ready to do something. He's waiting for us to make the first move. I wonder how many times we sit back and pray for things to change. And what God's really waiting on is for us to take a step of action, a step of faith. So that he can change things to be exactly what we're praying for them to be. That reminds me of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. When it talks about the five enemy armies that have come out against Jehoshaphat. The Spirit of the Lord comes on the prophet as they're fasting and praying. After Jehoshaphat prays one of the great all-time prayers about whether or not God was going to answer it, his people like he said that he would and defeat their enemies like he promised. The Spirit of the Lord comes on the prophet and the prophet speaks on behalf of God and he says, you won't have to fight in this battle but the Lord will fight for you. Your job is to go out against them and told them where they were, told them where the enemy armies were. Next morning they get up and Jehoshaphat tries to remind them of what the Lord said through the prophet. So he encourages them to believe the prophecy that the Lord had spoken through this Jehaziel. And it says that when they began to sing into praise, he put the singers out in front of the army. And when they began to sing in the praise, the Lord said ambushments. It was when the people of Israel took a step of faith first. That's when God brought his word to pass. Same thing's true here in this story. So now the lepers have found the deserted camp. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went out and hid it. And came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and also went and hid it. These guys were like a kid in a candy store. Then they said one to another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come on us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called the porter of the city and they told him saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold there was no man there. Neither the voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied and the, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters and they told it to the king's house within. And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. Folks, I want you to understand 
It's not because this guy, this king of Israel has great faith. It's not because he believes God. It's because God honors his word to his people. So the king arose and said, I'm going to show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we're hungry. Therefore, have they gone out of their camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we'll catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, let me, or let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left of the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. That means they've got five horses left to slaughter to kill for food. So they said, let us send and see. They took therefore two chariot horses and the king sent after the host of the Syrians saying, go and see. And they went after them under Jordan and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. They didn't even take anything with them. They're running out of their clothes to get away from the sound that wasn't there. And the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate. And the people trod or trampled upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Folks, it doesn't take God any time to turn things around. That's why the devil is so relentless in trying to get you discouraged and make you give up and quit. Because the only thing that ensures that you will not fail is if you don't quit. That's the only guarantee there is. God's not obligated to make his word come to pass for people that don't believe. He's not obligated to make his word come to pass for those that won't reach out in faith and take hold of it. He's not obligated to honor his word to people who won't put in the effort to find out what faith is and how do you use it. But he is obligated to perform his word and bring his word to pass. For those that accept it, believe it, and act in faith on it. Look with me to 2 Kings chapter 3. This is Elisha as well. Here's another one of those go-to stories for me. Beginning in verse 5 it says, But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And king Jehoram went out from Samaria at the same time and numbered all of Israel. This is before what we just read in chapter 7. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. Now, he probably should have prayed about that and found out what God wanted him to do first. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he, meaning the king of Israel, the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called uh, Judah. And so Jehoshaphat asked, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. 
And there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed him, followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. The stupidity of some of the people in the Bible is just mind-boggling. Here's the king of Israel that's upset. If you go read the previous verses before we started with verse 5, you'll find out that Moab paid tribute to Ahab. Ahab had convinced them of their military might, Israel's military might. And so Moab would pay tribute to, to Israel, King Ahab, every year. And apparently it turned out to be or uh, was represented to be a, a lot of stuff, very costly. But when Ahab died and Jehoram takes over in Ahab's place, Moab says, we're through paying tribute. He's challenging the new king. Well, the new king is hot-headed, so he gets Jehoshaphat to agree to go with him. And Edom is the enemy of Moab anyway, so they go in league with Edom. And so they get in a place where they travel seven days in one direction, realize they don't have any water, they don't have any resources, they don't have anything to replenish their supplies. And so now they're too far away to take the army anywhere and get there before they die. And he blames it on God's plan. He says, look at what the Lord has done to bring these three kings together to destroy them. The only reason they're out there is because the king of Israel is an idiot. But here they are. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Like I said, they're a little late going to that party. But still, God in his mercy. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? You've never wanted God's help or his input so far. Why are you coming to me now? Folks, the reality is a lot of people only go to God when they get in a painful enough situation where they hurt bad enough to go. That's not the way God wants us to approach him. But it's the way that it is with so many. So Elisha said, what have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy, mer- thy mother. That's Ahab and Jezebel. And the king of Israel said, Nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. This would have been the perfect place for Elisha to say, Oh, well, okay, you've got it figured out. You've got your own answers. What do you need me for? Have you noticed people, a lot of times people in authority think they know the answers and they don't know beans? And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, 
You shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, that you may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing. I love this. Look at this verse, verse 18. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. And you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that behold there came water by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. Now folks, if uh, I'm going to try to describe this to you and why it says the water came by way of Edom. Imagine a map of the area of Israel. You've got on the left side of the map, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. And ancient Israel was on the, the uh, upper coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Judah is just south of them. And then right in the middle of what we know of as Israel today, or the area of Israel today, you've got the Sea of Galilee, which starts up in the northern part of the country, and the Jordan River, which goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. So you've got, on the left side of your map, you've got Israel. Well, let me do this mirror image. You've got the Mediterranean Sea, the coastline. You've got Israel to the north. You've got Judah to the south. You've got the Jordan River and the Dead Sea toward the, uh, the south, southern part of that as well. You've got Edom on the south part on the other side of the Dead Sea. And then you've got Moab just north of them. So when the water comes by way of Edom, it's not coming by the Mediterranean Sea. The closest body of water to Edom would be the Gulf of Aquaba, which is, you know how the Sinai Peninsula makes a, a, a triangle? Well, the one on the, uh, the right side is the Gulf of Aquaba. It's certainly not prone to waves. It's certainly not prone to any movement of water in any way whatsoever. The scripture is telling us God brought water from nowhere where it could come from. Now, I've heard theologians and different people talk about how there was flash floods and there can always be flash floods in the desert. And that's certainly true, but where's the water coming from that causes the flood? And as big and as difficult and as miraculous as this looks to us, God had Elisha to add a truthful statement at the end that should thrill our hearts. This is but a light thing. For the Lord your God. Now folks it's one of the most. Mind boggling miracles. That we have in the history of the world. But that's a light thing to God. If God would do that for his people. Israel who are servants. Who by and large were disobedient. How much more would he do for his children. How much more would he do for you and me. So it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that behold there came by water by there came water by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come to fight against them they gathered all that they were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning and the sun shone on the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. God defeated the enemies of Israel in this case defeated the Moabites with glare. The water looked like blood to them. 
Well, obviously it wasn't blood. But just like he had performed a miracle in the ears of the Syrians, he's performing a miracle in the eyesight of the Moabites. And we wonder whether or not God will come through and help us pay our rent. And they said, surely this is blood, and the kings are slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore Moab to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites, so that they fled before them, and they went forward smiting the Moabites, even in their country. They chased them down into their own, own lands. And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast they his stone, and filled it, and they stopped all the wells of water, and felled all the good trees, only in some place left they the stones thereof, howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. God can turn things around so quickly. So quickly that it has to be a mistake for us ever to consider to give up. I wonder when we get to heaven how many times we'll see that our answer was just around the corner when we gave up on it. Maybe I should say I used to wonder that about myself. But now that I don't give up anymore, I don't have that to be concerned about. But I wonder how many Christians are just that way. People reach out and then they get discouraged by the enemy and they let that discouragement take them away from the truth of the word. And they forfeit the blessing and the mercy of God that was there for them just around the corner. Remember what Jesus asked those two blind men? You believe I'm able to do this? What do you believe God's able to do? I'm not talking about just a flip casual answer. God can do anything. I mean really thinking about your situation in mind. And identifying our, for ourselves. What do we believe God's able to do? The Bible is full of scriptures that tell us if God didn't withhold his best, which was his son already, how can he withhold any good thing from us now? I think we need to get fully persuaded about some things. We need to not only put faith in God's willingness and his mercy to do good things for us, but also in his ability to bring forth that which he had promised. And the more we think on these things, the more we meditate on these things, the more fully persuaded we become. God expects us to, to live in such a way that just like with Paul, since God is for us, who can be against us? Brother Hagin used to say it this way, since God is for us, who cares who's against us? I like that too. What do you believe God's able to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. You've shown us your love. You've declared your love for us. You've promised to see us through every situation, every circumstance, every problem, every battle. And so, Father, we magnify you for that mercy. 
We magnify you for your willingness to use your power on our behalf. But Lord, quicken us also to your power. Quicken us also to your ability to do what you promised. We believe, Father, that you are able so that nothing in this earth, no physical circumstance, no condition, no situation can come close to comparing with your power. Lord, we know that when you said you are the great I am, we know that means if we need something that you don't have, you'll make it for us. There's nothing too hard for you. Nothing too hard for you. And Father, we're looking for some suddenlies. Even as the Holy Ghost was poured out suddenly in Acts chapter 2, even as suddenly there was a sound from heaven, that scared away the Syrians. Just as suddenly the water came and filled the valley in Edom. And just as suddenly as you caused the eyes of Israel's enemies, the Moabites, to see water as blood. We're looking for some suddenlies too, Lord. Father, you said whatever we call for and required in your name, the name of Jesus, you'd do it for us. So we ask you, Father, are the days of suddenly past? Or do you still have some suddenlies that you're able to do today? We believe that you still have it today, Father. And so we ask you for suddenlies. We ask you for sudden bursts of healing power. We ask you for sudden financial success and victories. We ask you for sudden outpourings of the Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Holy Ghost. We ask you to put things together suddenly, Lord. Just as you delivered your people overnight in these two magnificent, miraculous stories. You said these were like things. Things that seem impossible to us. Mind-boggling to us. We believe you. When you said these were like things to you. So we call for some of those like things for us too, Lord. And even more. We thank you that you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. In Jesus' precious name, amen.